Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Would you like to turn to 1 John? There will be some passages that we'll focus in on that will appear on the screen. And we'll get into studying this first of three books. So let me explain something about how these epistles of John work. One thing to notice, it may have not escaped your attention already, so please don't feel I'm patronizing you with this a bit of information, that when we read the letters, so things to Romans and Hebrews and Ephesians and Colossians, it is the audience that gets the name. But in these letters, it's the author that gets the name, Peter and John. So we don't know from just reading the title who the audience is. So I'm going to tell you because it's important for us to know as we read these letters. It is to the church in Ephesus that John is writing. So what that does for us is this. It brings into view all the other aspects of the New Testament which will help us to make sense of it, which also have a connection to the church in Ephesus. So if you were to read Acts 19, which we won't, but I would encourage you to do after this evening, you will hear about Paul going to Ephesus and planting the church there and the ministry uh, of the gospel that he he was involved in. Also, John's gospel um, is thought to have circulated initially, at least, to the church in Ephesus because John, who is writing to this church in Ephesus, was thought to be a member of the Ephesian church for a period of time. So also is Mary, the mother of Jesus, linked by tradition to the church in Ephesus. So also Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus will also be uh, relevant, and also the letters to Timothy. So the letters to Timothy are Paul writing to Timothy, uh, but Timothy had something to do in terms of the leadership of the church in Ephesus as well. And the dating of this letter is towards the end of the first century. That's significant because the uh, timing has been the, 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 uh, the war that I mentioned about in the last series, the Jewish-Roman war and the destruction of the temple has already happened at this point. So that has now shifted how people uh, um, understand the Jewish faith. And what that has done is it has also not only has the, the landscape of Judaism fundamentally changed, but also the nature of the heresies that the church was combating. So as we get into the uh, epistle of John to the Ephesian church or the epistles of John, the problem teaching which John is addressing is different to the problem teaching that Paul was addressing in his letters. Paul will have died by this point. He would have been martyred and gone. And this is, as I say, towards the end of the first century. So it's a very different theological landscape. But now different heretical views are coming. For Paul, it was people trying to get the Christian church to adopt Jewish practices who weren't naturally and ethnically Jewish. That was Paul's battle. John's battle is something different. It is Christianity that is seeking to be perverted through some of them, the types of mysticism and other religious ideas that were prevalent in that area of Ephesus. So that is a way that you can begin to map the context of John's letters. Let's give you a tiny little bit more detail. Uh, The author actually isn't named much like the uh, letter to the Hebrews. It doesn't say it's John. It 
the, the elder is talked about later on, but it doesn't actually specifically mention that it's John. We only know that it's John because there's quite a weight of evidence to say that it was John, the same disciple who wrote the gospel, who was the author of this letter. Some people offer the idea that maybe this was one of John's disciples writing under his name, who was schooled in John's thought and theology, who was writing this. Uh, but there is a fairly reliable um, weight of evidence to say that this was the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. In fact, when we start reading through in a moment, you'll see some similarities between how the Gospel of John opens up and also how this John here begins his letter. So, I've called them letters, but actually this first, uh, what we call letter, first John, isn't really a letter. When you're reading John's letters to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, he's like, hi, I'm Paul, remember me, we had some good times together, we had some bad times together, but I'm just writing to kind of beat you with a stick because you're getting out of line, but Timothy sends his greetings and Titus will be along soon to follow up what I said. That's kind of how Paul used to write his, uh, wrote his letters. But this first John is more of a sermon than it is a letter. So there's no, none of these greetings and preliminaries and niceties about the beginning of it. It's straight into theology, straight into teaching. And it's actually quite a simple structure. Some people, when they've read this book, thought it is a little kind of simplistic rather than just simple. But actually what uh, John the writer does is actually quite profound. He is quite intentionally, we think, uh, repeating certain topics and phrases for purposes of reinforcement. So we're talking about walking in the light and loving your brother and being in the truth rather than being in error. And it happens again and again all the way through this, uh, this, this first, what we'll call it a letter anyway, this first letter slash sermon. But it's, it's, it's a style of writing called amplification. It's a way of repeating things for emphasis so that you can make sure that people get the point. So as we read through, you'll hear words and phrases uh, repeated again and again. And let me just go back to that final part on that slide. It's whizzed through there. The context of Ephesus itself is a, it's a very cosmopolitan area. It's a very... Um, religious area, one of the seven wonders of the world, a temple to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, or Diana, as she was often known, and she, as a, a, a figure, was or is the uh, person who is, in modern movies, um, performed by Gal Gadot, w Wonder Woman, that's it, I knew that word and phrase was in there somewhere, so uh, Artemis and her temple which was uh, later on burnt down, um, is shown through modern movies as Wonder Woman. But it was a real melting pot of ideas and cultures and religious um, schools of thought that were all prevalent in that area. And if I was to give you a reason why that was such a problem, if I had gone over to somewhere like Ibiza and planted a church and my kids were over in Ibiza planting a church with me, and we'd got to a point where um, I decided me and my wife wanted to come back to the UK, but they were at an age where they could make their own mind up where they wanted to live, maybe sort of 17 or 18. They said, no, mom, dad, we want to stay here and carry on the work that we've all been involved in over the last few years. And I was to come back to the UK with my wife and leave my kids there. I would instantly be worried about the force of the culture on their state of mind and how they were living their lives. I would begin to be nervous that some of the strength of ideas that were part of the secular environment of the area might start to creep into their own mind's understanding of what was right and wrong. Maybe not overtly and obviously to begin with, but subtly those ideas start to creep in and the church says, rather than just have normal worship, hey, why don't we have rave worship here on a Sunday morning? Now, maybe you could get away with that. I don't know. 
I'm sure there's probably someone's wrote a paper out there somewhere on the theology of rave music and why it should be accommodated in the church in some context. Who knows? Um, but it might start at something like that. Then the other ideas would begin to creep in. And what I would want to do as a parent, at each and every opportunity, I'd be writing to my kids saying, Guys, are you still living a moral life? Are you still walking in a way that is honoring God? Are you still doing the things that you need to do as followers of Jesus? Have you begun to compromise to the spirit of the age or the ideas of your cultural environment? And this is what's going on in John. This is why he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. Clearly, he's not there at this point. Otherwise, he would have told it to them uh, through some sort of oratory uh, a moment with them. He would have preached them about this. But he's writing to them, probably on his travels, but wanting to make sure that they don't forget what they need to be doing, making sure that they are still on track. So let's now read through what he says and what these points of keeping on track um, were more what they were designed to say. Verse 1 of chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life that was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And this is your parallel to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And so here is John's kind of uh, a mirroring of that opening to us in this letter slash sermon. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us, indeed fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I think this is an interesting way to begin this kind of lead into his sermon to talk about the reason that you could have fellowship with us. He's clearly not thinking about, you know, when I'm in town, let's get together for tea and cakes. Um, I want to make sure that, you know, you're still hospitable to me when I'm in town. I don't think this is the kind of fellowship. What he's beginning to do, he's, he's beginning to say, in order for us to kind of be on the same page about stuff, for us to order, in order for us to genuinely connect and be of the same mind and of the same heart to the point where we could say we were in agreement with one another, then this is the kind of stuff that you need to be doing to make sure that we are still in good fellowship, in good standing with one another. Verse 4, we're writing these things so that our heart and joy may be complete. Verse 5, this is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. And if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we are lying. And we are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin... We're only deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, they're a liar, and the truth is not in them. But whoever keeps his word truly in him is the love of God made complete. And this is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one that you have heard from the beginning. 
The old command is the word that you have heard. Yet I am writing to you a new command, which is true, and in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother or sister, is in the darkness until now. But the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Just one more verse. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, and they walk in darkness, and they don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. So the first key metaphor that John uses here is about walking. And sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I question the metaphors that the writers use because I feel sometimes they are a little lacking in descriptive power to get me to fully understand the point they're driving at. Because for me, walking is not a particularly powerful idea. Walking is something I do if, you know, the shops are only 30 seconds away. Otherwise, I drive. So, first of all, you have to try and get in the mind of a first century person who actually would find that walking is a very big part of their life. They used to walk everywhere, unless you were really rich and you could have a donkey. So, walking was part of life. And when you were walking, you were going towards a destination. You didn't tend to just walk for fun. I don't think there were ramblers clubs in the first century. It was a very purposeful exercise. And in the kind of heat that you would expect in first century uh, Israel, there was also an idea that you tended to walk only at certain times a day, so you would plan your walking. You wouldn't be walking in the midday sun. And um, you, would, you would plan your route because there were certain routes that were not as safe as others. So you need to make sure you're on the right path. And I think something of those kinds of ideas help us to get into the mind of the writer here as to why they're using this term walking. That and it was also a phrase that was used in the Old Testament. We see it there, Psalm 119, 1-3. Uh, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all of their heart. They do no wrong, but they follow his way. So the metaphor of walking about it not being about just a destination or a place to go, but how you get there. What are you doing on that journey? And if you think about the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt and they were going towards their promised land, they were getting there on foot. And they were going towards the destination of the promised land, but God needed to make sure that as they were walking to the promised land, they began to walk as sons and daughters of God. And here's my Bananarama uh, reference. They weren't walking like an Egyptian. Because initially, when Moses had come down Mount Sinai with the commandments, he gave them some instructions so that on the route that they were taking, they started to live out a type of lifestyle which was according to God's principles and values, rather than live out a type of lifestyle that was walking like they would have done had they been Egyptians. And so this walking metaphor is a, a way of saying, are you one on the right path? Are you going to the right kind of destination with your life? Are you living in the call of God? Are you going to where God wants you to be? And as you go there and as you go on that journey, who are you going with? Have you got the right kind of people alongside you? You don't want to be on a long walk with a moaner. Have you got the right people on the eye? And are you walking in a way that is honoring God? Are you doing things on that journey which bring honor to Him? Or are you enacting things through your life which represent the life you say that you left behind? 
So this idea of walking was a descriptive way, a metaphorical way of saying, what type of life are you living? What's the destination you're headed? Who are you going with? How are you living out your life? In the Old Testament, they had to walk according to the law of the Lord. But now, part of this new uh, instruction that John gives has some added detail as to what walking according to God's ways looks like. Because in the Psalms there, it talks about walking according to the law of the Lord. But to John's community, there was... No denial of that, but a, 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 an extra set of clarity as to how that would work out in their day-to-day -day relationships. Part of it is, as we can see in 3.16, and we haven't read that yet, but I'm just fast-forwarding ahead to what we, we will read there, uh, because it's part of the same idea and teaching that he's got. He talks about how we lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. I added the sisters bit in. It wasn't there in the text. But I thought it's probably a good idea that we don't just simply lay our lives down for the guys. That we can lay ourselves down for the girls, lives down for the girls as well. And another thing it goes on to say in the next verse, if anyone has material possessions and they see their brother in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? So the first thing is to say you need to lay your life down for those around you, who you call your brothers and sisters. And a practical way that you can do that is if you see a material need, then you need to do something about it. And 13, sorry, 318, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is the kind of life that we're to live on the path that John envisaged for the receivers of his message. That they were laying their lives down for one another. If there were practical concerns, they were responding to those concerns, those needs. And making sure that they didn't just give lip service to loving one another, they made sure that their actions corresponded to what they said they believed about God. John doesn't have an idea of a, a happy, clappy Christianity that is devoid of practical ways of loving one another. And something I'll come to in my conclusion at the end is one point, not only pastorally in the sense of this reminds me that in, in, in my pastoring of people, I need to be practical in my love to them, not simply give them advice. I need to respond and to care in a practical way for people. But if you to try and get your eye, uh, mind around where John is at in terms of what successful Christianity looks like, John doesn't go down the line of if you're walking in the light, you need to be at the next prophetic conference. You need to make sure that you are excelling in your gifting and your charismatic gifting. You need to make sure that you're speaking in tongues seven hours a day. That's not the line that John goes down. He's teaching them, actually, if you're genuinely walking in this stuff, we won't know, know that by your prophetic unction. We will know that by practical expressions of love. And he was saying that if you want to see those who are genuinely in and compare and contrast those to those who only say that they're in and therefore they might not be in, it's not their gifting that will mark them out. It's the expressions of love and character that will mark them out. So success in this first century church was not about charismatic gift or excelling in those things and those who know me know I I love to prophesy in woo and coo along with the best of them but this letter this message is a is a word to me as well to make sure that in my embrace of all of those charismatic things I believe that through the Holy Spirit we can have in the church that I never lose sight that the main thing is that I love those around me in practical, in practical ways. Because it's possible 
to actually get off the track, to kind of start down the right road and get off track. And this is where we get to this passage to the church in Ephesus, which is written in the book of Revelation. Let's read this out. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, I think angel's code there for the leader of the church. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. And I know your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you found them out to be false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and you've not grown weary. Up to this point, the church in Ephesus, the same church that John's writing to, look like they're doing pretty well. They're not putting up by, with any shenanigans in the pulpit. No pretension. No people who claim superstar status within the church and simply just letting them get away with that without testing to see if they're the real deal. They're hardworking. They're diligent. And yet Jesus is going to bring a word of correction to them. And he says this. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Side note, if you want to know what the practices of the Nicolaitans were... The best guess, it was this kind of weird wife-swapping cult that lived on the peripheries of the church. I won't go into any more detail, but this Nicholas was supposed to be (laughs) the Nicholas who's in Acts chapter 6 as one of the guys who was marked out for being a deacon. He had got way off track, if church history serves us correctly. We don't know this, but I thought I can't read through this and mention the practices of the Nicolaitans and at least not give you what the consensus of academic research tends to conclude about what was going on. And this is why Jesus dislikes it so much. So they were against that. They tested people. They worked hard. But Jesus says, you've forsaken the love that you had at first. I've mentioned this in sermons previously. The NIV is unhelpful to us here because it says you have forsaken your first love as if basically it's saying you've kind of romantically fallen out of love with God who should be your first love that is not and was not the point of what Jesus was saying to try and take the modern idea of first love like some Jewish girl gets asked who was your first love Well, it was this guy called Peter who worked at the little pottery house down the road making latrines for the Romans. That's the guy I loved first. They they wouldn't have had that concept in mind. Didn't exist to them. It's an anachronism to paint that onto the first century. They're not, not saying here that you should have that kind of first love feeling for somebody. The NIV is unhelpful. That's why here in... The CSB, it's more helpful to say you've forsaken the love that you had at first. But who is the object? Is the object God? No. Because the antidote here is do the things that you used to do at first. It's not about loving God. It's about how they love one another. It's connected to this church in Ephesus who John is going to say in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. That we... Lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. So what we get to add to our understanding of what John was writing into from the book of Revelation is that this church had a lot of good things going for them, but in some way they had gone off track with the most basic fundamental part of being a follower of Jesus, and that was in how we love one another with intention and quality and real heart and priority. Jesus picking up on it again here in the book of Revelation, maybe around the same kind of time as John's epistle appeared on the scene, at least within a decade. 
probably. It's a way of driving home the point to this church. If you claim that you love God, your deeds are not enough. Testing teachers and preachers who claim to be this and that and the other and are not, just testing that and dismissing them is not enough. Making sure that you're watching out for the latest weird cultish behavior on the peripheries of church and, 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 and resisting any temptation to get involved in that, that's not enough. What is enough and what they did have to repent for was whether they were or they were not loving one another. And so successful Christianity is built on that. Loving one another isn't an addition to what we should be doing. It's the basis of what we should be doing. It's not a brick in the building. It's the foundation of the building. It's not decoration in the church. It's not, well, I hope as a Christian you learn to excel in prophecy and in tongues and in charismatic gifts. And I hope that you learn to differentiate between true and false teachers when you're watching stuff on YouTube. That stuff's good. But the basis, the foundation stone of it all was if you say that you love God, then that will be proven and tested most pertinently through where, so how you actively love one another. Not with lip service, but the real substance of practical application. So this is what John is saying to them. This is why he's wanting them to keep on track. But why is he laboring this so intensely? Well, part of the reason is because loving one another is hard, and so it's easy to stop doing it. Anyone who's been in any particular relationship of any sort for a period of time knows that loving somebody over the long term is a lot harder than loving somebody over the short term. We can get compassion fatigue, love fatigue, care fatigue, and it's a lot easier to get to the point where your life becomes quite functional. Well, I'm doing the right kind of things. I'm, I'm not being an idiot and I'm being friendly. But loving people with a real sincerity is not easy. And so you could imagine that over a period of time, one, for that reason, the church would begin to drift. And they said they were on the right path, but the fact that they had love fatigue was evidence that they could potentially walk off track if they weren't careful. But the other reason that John is stating this is because some of the culture had begun to come into the church through different ideas of what it really meant, meant to be a Christian. And part of that teaching came under the banner of a sort of heading called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a kind of mix of mysticism and Greek thinking and some Hebraic kind of thinking in a melting pot of ideas. And the idea of who Jesus was and why he'd really come had started to... to certainly through this teaching, be challenged. And the idea at the center of this Gnostic teaching was that life was about how you could elevate yourself through ever-increasing bits of knowledge and revelation in order for you to kind of move up the pecking order of spirituality within Gnosticism you had to, one, reject the things of the world. In fact, in Gnosticism, they didn't believe that the God who created the world was the same God who was the God that the New Testament writers had begun to reveal to people because they couldn't get their, eye, their head around the fact that a world that had problems in it could be created by a perfect God. If it was of matter and if it was of substance in this world, it was tainted by evil. It had problems in it. So it couldn't be that the God who made this world is really the kind of the chief God that we begin to see revealed in Christ. So there was this shift away from the God who created the world, which is why John always wants to start his stuff. And we're going, this is the same God that was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He wanted to make sure 
for those who had begun to go down the Gnostic line of in, uh, um, inquiry, that they would know that Jesus came serving as part of the God who created the world. Because the Gnostic idea of that God was that he was of a lesser status than the God who had brought revelation through the gospel. So that was part of it. But it was a very selfish religion. It was a religion about how can I excel? How can I grow? How can I reach a greater degree of revelation? How can I get more and more knowledge in me so that I can move up the pecking order of spirituality? It was a religious idea that centered around self. And if your fundamental understanding of what God wants of you revolves around you, then you will never learn to love. Well, no one else other than yourself. So with that, with that religious idea, it wasn't a fully worked out religious idea at this stage. It began to grow and it continued to grow after this period of time. But it was beginning to infect the church with its idea. And it's a very attractive thing to make your faith about you. And John's saying, if you want to really be doing this Jesus thing properly, it's not about you, it's about others. Because this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for others, and that's what you need to do too. It was the very opposite of Gnosticism. That wanted to raise itself up through greater and greater revelation. So this is what John is trying to correct. There's an interesting story that we learn from a later Christian writer called Papias, who said that the chief Gnostic influencer in Ephesus at the time was a guy called Serinthus. And the story goes that Serinthus was at these public baths in Ephesus, and John walked to the baths one day. Not I said the baths, not the bar. To the baths... An apostle walked into a bar and said, it's like a joke, isn't it? Walked into the bars and he saw Serinthus was in the bath. Like, obviously not like a, a little bath, like big Roman bars, okay? Let's just paint that picture properly. And the story goes that John said, I'm not going in the water because when God judges this place and basically destroys this building because that heretic is in the water, I don't want to be around at the time. And one thing that we will look at over this course of teaching in the next few weeks is how do we set boundaries around people who are a negative influence or negative influence on us and the church? Because one thing John didn't do was treat the wolves like they were sheep. And sometimes in churches in our desire to love everybody with the unconditional love of God, we have tolerated certain types of people who have been toxic in the community of church where what John began to do was say, these kind of people, they need to have no part in this place. If you begin to allow that to exist in the church, that kind of teaching influence, those personalities who are leading this kind of counter-Christ movement, or he calls it anti-Christ, then it's not going to be long before a little bit of yeast works its way through the dough and all kinds of other compromises are going to come in. And when we get to 3 John, John writes to a guy called Gaius, and he basically says, you need to make sure that people who teach and preach this stuff, you don't give them hospitality. Don't even open your front door to them because they're wolves and you've been warned about them. And you can't pet them to become sheep. You need to treat them what their nature is revealing them to be, and that is anti-Christ and anti-his church. And so we'll look at that some more in the coming weeks. The second and last thing we'll look at for this evening is what he begins to say about sin. So going back to chapter 1 again now, just to read these few verses for you again. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. 
And he says also, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and also the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he talking about sin? He's going to talk about sin quite a bit more as well in this first message. I think it's because this Gnostic teaching had begun to say, once you have this forgiveness from God, you're done. There's no more sin that you need to worry about. You're free from all the constraints and liberated from its complete effects and any consequences thereof. A bit like a, a weird hyper-Calvinism that you've been forgiven to the point where you never even need to think about it as a subject again. And what John, first of all, says is if anyone starts talking like that, they're a liar, and they don't have the truth of the gospel in them. Because anybody talks like that and understands what grace, the price of what grace was, was to achieve for you through Christ, you wouldn't want to talk like that. So there's a sense in which he's combating false teaching. But one of the things I picked up from comments about this passage, it wasn't an academic comment, it was just some reading around of what people um, talk about when they, and think about when they read this passage. In verse 7, it says, If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One idea was that remaining cleansed from sin was contingent on us walking in the light. That in order for you to remain cleansed, then you had to continue walking in that way. But I don't think that is what John is saying. And I'm going to explain this through another passage, which is in 1 John chapter 5 in a moment. But the first part here, where he says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us uh, from all sin, is more of an explanation of what you can count on if you walk that way. If you're not walking that way, and you're not walking in the light, well, then you don't have the truth in you, and therefore you haven't been forgiven for the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you're walking in the light and you're walking in the truth and therefore you have the truth of God in you, then you can be expectant that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So what John is saying is not that if you walk in the light, that is your means by which you can maintain the covering of the grace of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. He's saying that if you walk in the light, then therefore you can know that you have the blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins. Because if you didn't walk in the light, you couldn't have that assurance. Because people who don't walk in the light haven't been forgiven because they're not in the light. So he's explaining what they can know for themselves if they're people who walk in the light. If you don't walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't forgive you. Not because you needed to earn it through your walking, but that's something that's merited to you through the work of Jesus. And if you knew that and you believed that, then you would be showing that by how you lived your life. And I think that helps us to understand our last passage for this evening. Which is in 1 John 5:16 to 18. It says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone who is born of God does not continue to sin because the one, notice the capital O there, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. I know when I first used to read this as a young person, I was perplexed as to what that sin that led to death was. For a couple of reasons, I thought, well, 
If some sins lead to death, and I can just get a clear category list of what those sins are, then all the other sins are fair game. <laughs> I, can, I can do those. If, for example, hypothetically, this sin that leads to death was supporting Manchester United or going to a particular nightclub, I say, right, okay, as long as I don't do that, then I'm fine. All the other sins, I'm okay, I can be forgiven for those. You kind of know, want to know what those sins that lead to death are. I want specifics, John. Please, tell me exactly what those sins are. But I don't think this is what John's trying to do. He's not saying there are a particular, um, a couple of particular sins, which I'm not going to tell you, but if they do them, then they're going to lead to some sort of what we believe here is apostasy or complete spiritual death. The first way we can understand that is because the A in the Greek doesn't appear in the Greek language. So when it says there is a sin that leads to death, it just says in the Greek, there is sin. So what does sticking the A in mean? It means that it's, the translators are saying there is a type of sin. There is a type of sin that leads to death. And there are types of sin that don't lead to death. But then he goes on to say, but we know anyone who's born of God does not continue to sin, I was put in parenthesis, in the type of way that leads to death. Now, at the beginning of the verse as well, it says, anyone who sees their brother or sister see a kind of sin that does not lead to death, you should pray to God about that kind of thing. So I think this is part of a pastoral note. And it comes at the end of this particular message, and I think it runs along a theme that is in the New Testament and also in the book of John itself. What I think John is saying here is, if you are genuinely born of God, and you're genuinely walking in the light, and you're genuinely walking in the truth, you will not be walking down a path to live a kind of life of habitual sinfulness that keeps you walking towards destruction. Because the one who is born of God, they'll be kept safe. In 1 John 2:19, he says this, talking about some people who had left the church because they were being started to be aligned with this Gnostic teaching. They went out from us, but they did not belong, us, belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them ever belonged to us. What John is now closing with is what he's been saying all the way along, and we haven't read more than, you know, sort of a chapter and a half. There are certain people who, after a while, it becomes clear as to the nature of where they're at spiritually. That initially, you might not see it in them. They might talk the talk and begin to walk the walk. But at some point, you're going to see evidence in them that it was mere lip service to Christianity. Their heart had never really caught it. Never really understood it. It wasn't a genuine conviction and conversion work of the Holy Spirit. So what we'd have to do then is we'd have to reconsider that word brother and sister commit a sin to somebody you assumed was a brother and sister who is committing a type of sin. Who it will become apparent if they start walking down a life of habitual sinfulness, evidences to you that they were never truly a brother or sister in the first place. Because Paul earlier on is saying that there were people who were part of them, who would have been going to their breaking of bread services, sitting in the meetings when John was teaching, maybe listening to some of the stories of Mary, the mother of Jesus, talking about the raising of Christ as a child. Sitting in those meetings saying, yes, we follow Jesus. And then after a while, when this other teaching became something of a problem to the church, they were drifting off and going in that way. And they were starting to teach things which were not just 
ungodly, but counter-godly, counter-Christ or anti-Christ, as John says it. And John says, now we can begin to see these true colors of these people. They claim to be part of us, but the fact that they've gone shows that they were never truly part of us. I think what John's saying is that there are people, if you see them walking down a type of life of, uh, of habitual sinfulness, you don't need to pray about that because they're just watch because you're beginning to see God sifting the weeds from the wheat. You're beginning to see those who were genuinely followers of Jesus from those who've only talked the talk that they follow Jesus. You were seeing a separation of sheep and goats happening. There's something similar to this in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It's impossible that those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted their heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness and the word of God and the powers in this coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. Why has that got anything to do with this? Because for the Hebrew community, there were people who would basically come into the church gatherings, heard about the good news of Jesus, they'd seen the miracles, they'd seen the evidence of the work of God in the Holy Spirit, and now they were walking away from this fundamental teaching about Christianity, and they were reverting to, in this case, back to Judaism. And when it says impossible, don't read, it's forbidden. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say it's forbidden for them to come back. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because they've seen it all, they've heard it all, and yet they're going back to just considering as Jesus as some guy who died on a cross. And it's impossible if that's the decision that you've made about Jesus to come back to a place of repentance. Not because God forbids it, but because you've seen it and heard it and written it off. You've got nothing else left to offer people like that. So I think in the teaching of the New Testament, and, and also remember that in the first century, like the types of sin that they were talking about, yes, there was problems probably with people aligning themselves with, you know, sort of some of the more um, immoral temple practices. But we mustn't project onto this notion of sin, Western ideas of sin that affect us in the church here in the West in the 21st century. The heart of sinfulness, as far as John's concerned, is people who are discrediting the basics of the gospel message and who Jesus was and who the type of God he professes to be and introducing new and fanciful and downright wicked ideas of what it meant to follow this God and how we should treat one another. This was the problem of sin. And that's why in Revelation it says that when they get back to this first love they should have one another. Jesus says, repent. That's the type of corrective phrase that you would use for somebody who was sinning. That Jesus was saying there that to not love one another is sin. So I think that the teaching of sin that John is bringing to the church, he's saying that if you want to be confident that Jesus has forgiven your sins and cleansed you from your unrighteousness, then if you're evidencing that you are following him by walking in the light and walking in the truth, well, then you can be confident that the blood of Jesus covers you and forgives you of your sins. And in fact, you're going to continue to sin, and we've got an advocate for that, and you can confess your sins, and God's faithful to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. But if you begin to see people who are walking in a deliberate and intentional intentional pattern of sinful behavior, that type of sin is leading them down the path walking towards death. There's no point in praying about it because they've, they're showing that God isn't in them anyway. What you, you can save your prayers because they've already hardened their heart so much so that they're prepared to walk away. So when you're praying for them with a hard as hard as theirs, you might as well save your prayers for those who are walking in the light. 
You don't need to be praying about that stuff. Because this is something of a sifting going on in the church, a separation of sheep and goats. So, okay, let's go to a conclusion. So the first thing I think this book teaches, teaches us is the devil takes advantage where there is a godly leadership vacuum. How did I get that from what I've read? Well, at the beginning I told you that Paul's died. John, who was connected to that church, is clearly away from the pulpit at this period of time. And Timothy has possibly died, is possibly still alive, we don't know. But there is a fair case to be made that he wasn't around at the time either. And the fact that this heresy was creeping into the church and the fact that John had to write in the first place was because devil was seizing the opportunity where there was a, a kind of a vacuum of decent leadership to kind of bring that heresy into the church. What's the practical application of that today? As Christians, it's not just leadership being absent from the church, but it's people who are the church who are absent from leadership in that they are not in a church where they can be led. Because where there is a vacuum of decent teaching and leadership, you're more vulnerable to any wave of teaching that would come around you and try and offer you a different way. Some people are not missing good church leaders because there are none available. They're missing them because they've chosen not to be in church. And this was a problem for the people that John was writing to, but because of the first reason, because there was no sort of godly leadership there. The second thing is not everyone who is in the church and claims to be a Christian is evidently a genuine follower of Jesus. So factor that in if someone hurts or offends you. I've heard many, many stories of people say, so-and-so, they claim to be a Christian and they were horrible to me. Yes, maybe they're carnal. Maybe they're not a Christian. Maybe they're in church and they nod along and they amen from time to time, but they haven't yet fully got it. For the community that John's writing to in Ephesus, he was aware that some people were going to show what they truly believed by leaving the church and going elsewhere and believing other things. It was possible to have sheep and goats or sheep and wolves in the same congregation. So if somebody hurts you and they claim to be a Christian, maybe they were and they need reproving for that. Maybe they were a Christian, but maybe they're not too. Maybe a lot of the bad reputation that people get from the church hurting this person, that all Christians claim to be this, they're hypocrite. Well, maybe the people that you're using as your data pool for that aren't genuinely followers of Jesus. Genuine followers of Jesus are marked out by how they love people and what little concern they have for the things of this world, which the world offers as desirable and successful. True Christianity is the type of Christianity, John says, that loves one another. That's it. If they're not loving one another, then they're not walking in the truth. And if they're not walking, walking in the truth, then the blood of Jesus doesn't cover them, and therefore they're not Christians. Penultimately, here just to say, a highly successful faith in the first century was not marked out by gifting. It was marked out by character and practical expressions of love. And I think what John's readers would have needed to do is have some time of prayerful reflection to make sure they weren't drifting from the path. There would have been a, a sense of self-examination. Am I walking on the right path? Am I walking in the light? Or have things started to become a bit gray and fuzzy and dim? And the marker that they could see as to whether they were still on the right path and they weren't drifting was whether they were still loving one another. Yes, maybe some people who left the path were never truly on it in the first place. But also there is some element of warning for Christians to make sure that they keep the right kinds of things prioritized. And I sound like I'm, I'm knocking Pentecostal and charismatic gifts this evening. I'm not. 
But again, it's interesting that John the writer isn't holding up gifting and supernatural manifestations as the test and the markers for whether genuinely someone's walking in the light. He's saying you will find out through whether they love one another. When you see people in the church quietly going about their faith, practically helping and loving and caring and serving, thinking less of themselves than they do of others, and making sure that they give their lives in a way that doesn't draw attention to themselves but honors Jesus by how they help one another, they are the real deal. Those are the types of people that you want to be on that walk with. They're the people that are really doing the stuff. Because other people will come in and they'll give you their fancy ideas of the theology, their new ideas of the theology, and they'll tell you that you need to have a theology that, it, that, that, that puts the focus on you. And John's saying, if you start to hear that stuff, be concerned. And make sure that you keep loving one another as the priority. Okay, so we'll leave it at there for today. I'm going to talk a little bit more next week about how we handle false teaching because this word antichrist appears a lot in 1 John. Paul doesn't talk about the word antichrist. Possibly it's the same phrase that's associated with a man of lawlessness that he talks about in 2 Thessalonians. We don't know for sure. Um, but antichrist for John, as we'll see, has more to do with a type of belief than it does with an individual person who might, who might oppress the world. And the spirit and the work and the operation of that teaching for John was already present and, and affecting that congregation. He wasn't waiting until 2021 for Antichrist to be a problem. He was saying, this stuff is already happening and it's a big deal. And we need to address it. So we'll look at that next week. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.